Hi, welcome to episode 44 of the American Tributaries podcast, where to break out of the bubbles we all live in. We're using modern technology to explore the various currents of people in our great country, kind of like a 21st century Lewis and Clark journey. I'm your host, Michael Whitten, here in Brooklyn, New York, and thank you for joining me in this exploration of America. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Michael Gordon, who has been a dear friend since we first met in college back in, gosh, September 1989. Michael is currently an orthopedic surgeon uh, who's doing lots of interesting work, and probably even more importantly, he's always been a loud, proud booster for the Badger State. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing, and could you share a bit of your story? Thanks for having me, and I appreciate you now outing how old we are. I say we all met in our freshman year. Um, doing well. It's a it's a phenomenal Sunday in Wisconsin with forty degree temperatures in January, which will take any any time we can get them. Um, but uh, uh, enjoying uh, and kind of following your journey with what you're what you're uh, doing for uh, uh, your career path, what you're doing for uh, the people of the country, trying to introduce all of us to to things we don't know. Yeah, no, thanks. You, you know, I think you know, even you know, when I visited you in um, Milwaukee, you know, way way back when we graduated from college, um, <laughs> we won't keep saying how many years ago it was. But when I visited you, I guess that was the one and only time that I've really been kind of in that whole part of the country, and it was great. And it's 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 shame that it's it's been so long since we could get back there. But I think it just really underscores how big the country is and how much there is to you know to explore. Floor. Actually, it's funny. It reminded me when we were in college that uh, people thought of the Midwest as flyover states. You flew over uh, uh, the Midwest to get to LA and San Francisco and now Seattle, that being a hotbed or Portland. Um, on the East Coast, it was New York, it was Philly, it was Boston. Now Atlanta's obviously booming, but people forget that Houston's ginormous, Chicago's huge. Um, you know, and I think it was even surprising to, uh, to you, you can't see the other side of Lake Michigan. It truly is a great lake. It's, you know, 40, 50 miles across. Um, so it is, a, it is a, a big region, um, definitely a different culture than out East. I, I think for me, it was a big culture shock going to Philadelphia, um, and then, uh, going up to Boston and seeing a different part of the East coast and even visiting you and went up to, to, to your hometown and, and seeing not just New York city, but uh, part of the Island and, um, it's just a world I didn't know. What was the difference for you? I mean, when you, when you came out here compared to how you grew up? Well, a couple of things. I mean, I think, uh, for those that don't know, we went to college in the middle of, you know, West Philadelphia, which was a, a, you know, it was, it was an economically depressed neighborhood. It was a neighborhood that had, uh, um, significant crime difference than the neighborhoods I grew up in. I'm, I was, you know, very fortunate. I grew up in the suburbs of Milwaukee, and just like every city, Milwaukee has its issues in the in the actual uh, downtown uh, uh, central portions of the city. Uh, Philadelphia was no different; it's just a bigger version. Um, I think it was super eye opening for me uh, because I had it wasn't so much the 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 racial uh, uh, diversity; it was more seeing the economic disparity of. Uh, um, the homelessness, the um, people that were panhandling, the people that had a lot of mental health on the street. Um, that was really eye-opening for me. And it was also eye-opening, unfortunately, to see the way some of um, our classmates responded to it. I remember being very struck by people not necessarily making fun of, but also not respecting those folks. You know, I kind of, I, I made an agreement with myself. It's, a, it's okay to tell a little white lie. Uh, when somebody was asking me for money on the street, and I'd say, no, I don't have any today, but at least I acknowledge their existence. And you know, gave them the the respect they deserved that they were a person. Um, I didn't uh, I didn't 
ever experienced like that before. And it was, it was pretty opening for me. And the other thing is that, you know, Philadelphia is a pretty hard city. Like people are pretty aggressive. They're pretty, they're, they're, they're vocal. Um, they're, they're kind of more in your face. Wisconsin is a pretty mellow place. Um, you know, we have, you know, we have our, our strong-willed folks, but it tends to be a little bit more of a, uh, um, take your time before you speak, um, kind of a place. And, you know, maybe let the other person go first, uh, kind of a place. Um, and, you know, so after my four years in Philly, I went up to Boston, I thought Boston was much more of a Midwestern feel. I think partially because it's such a melting pot of people from around the world and so many different cultures come together, you know, it's still East coast. It's still got a little more of that fast paced life. Um, yet it is, uh, um, a, sl- a slower way of life in some ways than what we saw in Philly. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. What, so, I mean, did you think about staying out in the, like in, you know, did you going to like university of Wisconsin or like other places in the Midwest? Or did you, were you set on going to, you know, whatever top school you could get into wherever it was? That's a good question. You know, first of all, we're spoiled here. You know, University of Wisconsin in Madison is a tremendous institution. It's academically very strong. Um, athletically, you know, it's got a, a great program, particularly now they're really booming. And socially, it's, you know, off the charts. Um, and that was one thing that was a, a little bit of an adjustment for me uh, with uh, uh, going to Penn because we didn't quite have the same student size. It's not a 50,000 person university. And, you know, Penn's only got eight to 10,000 undergraduate students. So it's definitely a different social culture and because the neighborhood we're in, it's not like you were hanging out in the streets all the time, going from, you know, house to house for different parties. Um, but for me, I, I was fortunate. I was given the opportunity to explore where I could get in and, and I wanted to take those four years as a chance to see another part of the country. I thought it was really uh, important to do that. I think it's uh, rounded out my perspective on things. Um, I had great support from my family and uh, um, from the, uh, the school I went to, which was uh, a wonderful public high school. I'll put a shout out for Nicolay um, because it really prepared me very well for our experience. Uh, I, I was pretty intimidated when I got to Penn because, you know, we met a lot of folks who were, you know, went to private schools and boarding schools and, and had yeah. what I thought was going to be this elite level education. And I realized my simple public education was actually probably as good, if not better. Um, and I was really spoiled with that. Um but I just knew I wanted to get away a little bit. And I think for me, for my growth, I needed to get away. Um, I always knew my path was going to be somewhere towards medicine because it's something I always wanted to do. Um, and for me, college also is kind of a step to get to the next level. Um, but uh, um, I was very fortunate to have the opportunity. And I'll be very honest with you, had I gone to Madison, it would have been a great experience. I was a little jealous of my friends when I hear about you know what they were doing and travels. And I got to live it up a little bit when the Badgers went to the Rose Bowl for the first time. You know, in decades, 1994, I traveled out for that. And uh, I'm sure you don't remember this, but that was a game that there was about 90,000 Badger fans out there and they oversold the game. So there was just red everywhere. And it was just such a cool environment to be a part of. Uh, it was just a little different than the sporting experience we had, although closest we had is when, you know, Penn basketball with a blustro, which should have been such a storied facility and uh, it'd be packed for the big game. So it was fun. Yeah. So, what, so how did you, do you, did you always know that you wanted to go into medicine or what was like the first spark for you that, you know, Hey, I think I'd like to be a doctor. Um, you know, I was, I grew up in an, in an environment with my father was an orthodontist and, uh, interestingly, he doesn't have a college degree. Uh, he went straight to dental school. Um, and my grandfather was a, uh, uh, ear, nose and throat physician and somebody I just revered growing up. He unfortunately had a pretty severe dementia by the time I got to probably late middle school um, and then uh, passed away when I was in high school. 
Um, my uncle, his son was also a physician or is a physician, excuse me. Um, I also come from a long line of teachers. Uh, my mom's a teacher. Uh, my sister's a teacher. Uh, and that I enjoy the, the communication part of that. And I was lucky. I, being surrounded by folks like that, I have a love for, for math and science. I have a love for trying to figure out how things work. Um, I was always involved somewhat in sports on some level, and I was always intrigued reading the sports page about different injuries. And so it kind of was a pathway that was laid out for me. Um, and it was, it, it made college somewhat easy because I knew the direction I wanted to go in. Uh, you know, now that I take care of a lot of college students, it's fascinating talking to them about, you know, what their major is and what their plan is, or asking my 15 year old high school student, what are you gonna do with the rest of your life? And you know, as they're trying to figure it out, and I guess I was one of the lucky ones that knew pretty early. Yeah. Well, so you knew not only that you wanted to be a doctor, but you wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. Not necessarily that part, but I, it was something that I was drawn to in medicine. I, um, I actually was, when I was in med school, I actually did a, a month rotation in ear, nose and throat, which my grandfather did. And I loved it. It's an amazing field. And I knew pretty quickly, I didn't want to do um, what you would define as an internal medicine field, which is not knocking on it. For me personally, I wanted something that was going to be, I could use my hands more that I could get a definitive answer. You know, orthopedics is about as concrete as it comes in medicine. If the bones broke, you make it straight and you fix it. Um, you know, so it's, it's not, it's not, let me adjust your medicine since you back and we can see how you respond. My brain needed a quicker uh, um, result than I could get with that. And so uh, orthopedics fit into that pretty well. And what is, what exactly is orthopedic? Is it both big medicine or orthopedic surgery? What's the like practice field? I mean, my, my career title is I'm an orthopedic surgeon with a sports medicine okay. fellowship, but okay. uh, orthopedic surgery is basically the, the management of bone and joint disorders. You know, the medical equivalent would probably be rheumatology where they're looking at uh, 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 probably the most, but the most overlap would be that looking at joints and inflammation and, uh, uh, manage the lining of the joint and, and articular cartilage issues and things like that. We do the, the surgical correction of these things. They've got more of the medical side. Um, there is now some pathways of primary care sports medicine or pediatric sports medicine where they're, they're uh, um, also kind of venturing a bit more into management of joint uh, issues. But, you know, classically, when you, when, you think of, when you think of somebody with arthritis and they're having a joint replacement, that's what we do. Or if they've got a herniated disc, that would be our world or the neurosurgeons or somebody tears ACL, that's our world. Mm -hmm. But so, and when you're, is it just joints or is it anywhere, any, any, any part of the muscle? Like a um, muscle tear muscle is that you responsible for? Muscle too? joint, yeah. Yes. Okay. Any, okay. I mean, it sounds very interesting. I feel like that's kind of something that you like, because like you said, if you play sports, you can kind of, it gives you at least a, a very practical insight into what this all means versus like maybe other things, which might be more like kind of like theoretical, but the orthopedic work seems to be more like relatable. Everybody can understand aches and pains. It is. I mean, I'm a hit at, at holiday parties because everyone's got, you know, back pain or their knee hurts. And, oh and gosh. you know, and it's also, <laughs> I mean, it's fun too, because it's nice to be able to relate to what people are going through. Um, you know, and again, it's also a pretty concrete field. There's not a lot of abstract parts of what I do. Oh, but, uh, so I, I'm, I'm very fortunate. I'm, I, you know, when you and I talked in the past, I, I would argue I'm, I'm one of the luckiest people because I found a career path that fits my personality and that fits me. And I've, uh, got an unbelievable, uh, group of patients that, that understand me and have been a huge part of my life. And, and, have allowed uh, me to share in their lives and you know, the most humbling thing in the world when somebody gets hurt and they ask you to help them. Um, so we're very fortunate. Yeah. 
So what is your current practice as far as like private patients versus you have some like kind of more like organizational clients too, right? Sure. No, I, so I'm, I'm a private practice. I'm one of the, I'm, I'm one of the last, last one standing as a private practice orthopedic surgeon. There's a group of five of us um, called Milwaukee Orthopedic Group. Um, it's actually the first medical corporation started in the state of Wisconsin back in the 60s. Um, in my career, I've had some incredible opportunities for about seven or eight years. I was the head orthopedic doctor from Milwaukee Bucks. Um, I've taken care of different high schools in town, which is really quite enjoyable to, to go back to high school sports and the innocence of it and the passion the kids have, um, knowing that it's going to be the one opportunity to do these sports. Uh, I'm now the uh, uh, orthopedic physician for Marquette University. And uh, um, we're uh, really enjoying that experience. It's it's a phenomenal institution. The, the sports programs are great. The value structures is the way it's supposed to be. You know, students first, athletes uh, second. But part of their experience, that's why they choose to go there, is to be a college athlete. And you know, they want to experience that. Most of them will never go on to play pros, but they, you know, they have a different experience than a lot of different. Uh, um, uh, than, than a quote traditional student might have. Um, and so I've also, I work with the, the largest running group in the state of Wisconsin called the Badgerland Striders, which is a couple thousand member running group. And uh, I've been a long time runner. Um, so I kind of understand the psychosis that they all have, um, that they don't <laughs> running even if they're injured. Um, and so, you know, I can relate to, to what their, their experiences are. Mm-hmm. And I guess when you're working with the like with Marquette, is it all the sports teams or just certain teams? Like, how does that work? Um, I'm actually I'm working with all the teams now. Um, it's not that I'm on site for every game. You know, we're on site for every one of the men's basketball games. Uh, we're on site for all the women's basketball games. I try and get to as many of the soccer and lacrosse games that I can. Um, it's amazing how much lacrosse has taken off here compared to. You know, when I first learned about lacrosse with you in the hallway, when they broke one <laughs> light bulb, but that's, uh, it's okay. Um, but, uh, uh, ironic since your state has a, a place called lacrosse. Exactly. And, and quite honestly, a lot, a lot of the really bad beer that is drunk in college when we were there came from lacrosse, Wisconsin, uh, from G. Allen Brewery. But, uh, um, we, uh, we, it, it's, it's really fun because you have things like men's basketball, which is the, as you can imagine, the economic engine, because they're the ones on national TV and, and you know, uh, just like football and basketball generate most of the revenue for, for sports uh, and on campuses. But the quote unquote secondary sports, the, the soccer, the lacrosse, volleyball, our volleyball team was phenomenal this year. Packed gym watching them. One of, one of my favorite sporting events I've ever covered uh, was the uh, 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 Big East. Uh, uh, game against Creighton. It was absolutely packed, loud as can be, people who knew uh, volleyball. And it's just, it's great. And that the passion of the both the fans and the kids is fantastic. And you also get to see a lot of kids that may not have had an opportunity to get an education come through these programs and go on and do things that are going to change the world. And and particularly in the soccer program at Marquette, I've seen a bunch of kids that would never have had the opportunity to get their degree. And they use it as an opportunity to get their degree and literally are changing the world with some of the stuff they're doing. And it's just really neat to be a small part of that process with them. Yeah. Wow. Um, what, uh, like what's from you, from your professional perspective, is any, is any particular sport, um, like the, the most punishing on the, on the, on the, on a person's body? Or do they all have their kind of like challenges? Oh, look, they, they're all going to have their risks. Um, 
you know, I use your sport of lacrosse. I mean, you've got unbelievably strong, quick twitch people planting and twisting while somebody engaging their upper body. So the, the injury level is pretty high. Um, I think everyone recognizes with football, the injuries can be pretty devastating just because there's such high impacts. Um, you know, interesting, if you look at statistics, it's like cross country and cheerleading are some of the highest risk sports out there just because of uh, um, what they do. But most of the injuries are, are less severe. Um, so every sport's got their risks. And, and you know, part of the, the, the collegiate process is a very uh, heavy duty strength conditioning program to try and minimize those risks. And have you seen, and I'll say this, I guess I have a, a selfish interest as a, as a father of two boys who've, you know, started to get into sports, but have you seen a change in the types of injuries because of, I guess, kids being kind of forced to specialize at an earlier age, you know, to where like, you know, kids, I feel like when we were growing up, like you might play soccer a lot, but you also might do soccer in the fall and basketball in the you know winter and maybe play another sport in the spring or just take time off. Whereas I think what I see even in like just in our neighborhood in like Brooklyn is that kids are playing soccer. They could be playing nine months a year or more. So have you seen that and like any, like I guess change in the kind of injuries or the wear and tear that student athletes have now compared to when you first started? Well, I think that the data is, clear out there and, and i can't cite all the numbers for you but the single sport speciali- specialization has not been good for kids uh it's been bad for injuries i think it's bad mentally i think what it does is for the 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 elite group do phenomenal i think there's a group that get left behind or they're injured and they lose interest um, i also read a really interesting article the other day talking about how all of these specialized programs have taken away the ability of kids to lead and develop communication leadership skills, which I never thought of till I read this. But, you know, when I was growing up in, in my neighborhood, you know, you'd pick up the phone and you'd call Johnny's house and say, Johnny, you want to play football today? And then we'd each call two more people, see if we get, you know, six or eight people together. And then, hey, Johnny, can you bring some Frisbees to be, you know, the end line markers? I'll grab a football. And then if Johnny didn't remember the Frisbees, Somebody had to, you know, go out and get them or say, Johnny, it's your responsibility to go home and get them. And now because everyone's being carted around everywhere, all wearing the same uniforms with the same bags and the same sweatsuits with their name on it when they're nine years old, you've lost that. And, you know, part of it's a safety issue because the world's changed. Part of it's social media where you can just put a little post out and say, hey, let's meet here in the park. So it's not, you have to start going, looking up phone numbers and, and do this responsibility thing. And I thought it was a really fascinating article because, I never thought about it that way, but uh, there's no question that it has uh, um, changed the way I think people's attitudes are about sports. I've also, for the first time in my career in the past few years, had kids happy when they've gotten injured so they can stop playing, um, you know, which really surprised me. Yeah. That's, you know, the, <clears throat> I think my son, my older son is now in seventh grade at Everett and there's sometimes it was a push to get more involved with sports and i always felt like you know one i don't want the wear and tear for you so i'm I'm not going to be the one to push you but the other fact of it was i was like you know if you've been pushed too early too hard for too long you're far more likely to burn out um you know emotionally 
um, and, and not make it to your end goal. If you want to become a professional athlete, you're just not going to have the stamina to be playing hardcore soccer from the age of second grade until you're 22, 25 or 30. I mean, I'm sure there are people that defy that, but in general, I just, it seems to me that there's also a lot more money at stake. Like, you know, when kids play, mm -hmm. you know, for football, it's like, well, I got to, um, I need to buy gloves. Like that's the first thing. Like, it's not just like, I want to play football. It's like, I have to buy gloves to play football and that wasn't the case i feel like when we were all growing up it's like you know you just have a football you throw it that's all you needed right that, and that was actually quite the beauty of soccer you know you, you needed a soccer ball and you needed you know a couple of trees to say that's you know going to be the end lines and yet you put down some frisbees as the goal um and i, I, I you're, there's no question you're correct I, I do think that giving kids the option to do it is great you know i don't have kids myself so i don't know how those discussions go at home but i've seen some really uncomfortable discussions in my office you know, some of these programs from these these elite, whether it be basketball or soccer or volleyball, people are spending ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year on these programs, and they're counting on college scholarships for their kids because this is their college money. And then when they get injured or the kid decides they don't want to do it anymore, all of a sudden, well, where's the money coming for college? And so it, it's it's like have we lost our priorities with what we're doing here, guys? You know, this is sports are supposed to be fun, and I'll speak for myself, and I'm sure you would say the same thing. Uh, I had unbelievable experiences with my teammates. I had unbelievable growth as a person from playing sports. I had, I developed unbelievable relationships with people because you went into, and I hate using war analogies of sports because I think it completely uh, disrespects, you know, people who are veterans and soldiers um, because the, 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 the risks are so different, but you know, those are your teammates. You know, you, you all got to be in the same page or else you're not going the same direction. So you're not going to win. And, and I, I look at that as, as such an important part of my development. I've had uh, uh, some friends talk to me about their kids that are a little socially awkward and, and struggling with getting along. People, I said, well, put them in a team sport. I've had another one talk to me about the fact that they don't have a lot of confidence. Put them in a team sport. Individual sports are going to be harder for them. So let them have that. Let their teammates pick them up and let them find a way to communicate with uh, people with like-minded mission uh, to go forward. Oh, but you also have to love it. And if you don't love it, don't do it. Maybe they're going to be the theater child or maybe they're going to be the music child or maybe they're going to be the computer kid, whatever it is that they'll do, but you know, let them find their, their niche. But uh, to, for me personally, sports was a big part of it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it is. And I think it's also, I mean, sometimes it's corny, but like for me, one of my all time favorite movies is, is it's Rocky three. Um, sure. But like just the idea of like somebody kind of like overcoming the challenges and you, and you see it, you see it all the time. And I think it's those, those can be like the reference points to kind of like willing yourself to at least try. Like to me as a parent, I try to like say to my kids, like whatever you're going to do, you, I don't care if you succeed or fail, but you want to at least know that you, you leave it all on the field. You want to know that you tried your best. I really don't care whether you succeed or fail. Just try your best. Mm -hmm. And, and well, that's I agree. At least, that was I, a mantra. I agree with you completely. And, and you know, the funny part is my parents still don't understand soccer. Uh, to the day my father passed away, I don't think I ever fully understood the sport, but they would always be out there supporting me. And, and um, what they really learned and joy was in the running that I've done um, as I've gotten older. And I've traveled around with some friends to marathons around the country and, and just a really nice network of people. My parents love going to Boston for the marathon. They just love the pageant job. And they'd see me for, you know, 30 seconds as I go running by uh, amongst, you know, a million people lining the street. But they just loved being a part of it and loved to see it. And whether I ran well, whether I ended up in the medical tent with an IV, uh, whether I ran poorly, they just loved being part of it and seeing 
the enjoyment we had as a group of friends out there and how everyone was supporting each other. And uh, um, so I, I'm 100% agreement that, that if it's something your kids love, you can do it and encourage it. Because for me personally, I got so much out of it and gave me so much more confidence as an individual because I've always been a pretty quiet, um, shy kid. Um, but, you know, playing soccer and taking penalty kicks, you better have some confidence. Um, playing soccer, being the last man and being a captain, you better have some confidence. Um, and so, you know, you learn. It's funny because when I played tennis, I was a much better doubles player than a singles player because mentally I don't think I was as strong in singles as when I had a great doubles partner. And we crushed it because he was this really upbeat guy and could help me kind of keep my spirits up um, as we were out there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I can see that. Um, you, it's funny you mentioned how many marathons have you run? I've done forty. Wow! And you know, I, I remember asking my my general practitioner a few years ago. Um, I was like, you know, because I've definitely weighed much more than I should, and I asked him like, so at what weight do you think I could start trying to run again? And he said, "Don't ever run again." It's like it's not good for your knees. Um, would do you do you think that at some point maybe you could have you done so much damage to your knees from being overweight to where you really shouldn't ever run again or is running good for everybody maybe is the question or or, or for some people they shouldn't be running you're asking a really important question and one that i have a very strong opinion on um <laughs> like i would I, challenge i know you well enough to know that most things you'll probably have a strong opinion on <laughs> yes, it depends, on, depends on what we're talking about but uh um i would challenge your doctor to show me the article that running is bad for your knees because those articles don't exist now that comes to the caveat that if you've had a prior meniscus surgery or you've got a horrible male alignment issue or you're very bow-legged or very knock-kneed certainly running may not be the best sport for you but there is nothing that says that running is bad for your knees. Um, if anything, there are studies that suggest that movement and loading encourage your body to thicken the cartilage and to make your bones denser because they're getting used. Um, now, it has to be done in moderation. It has to be done with a progressive program. Uh, one of my hats that I that I try to wear is the Badgerland Striders have a marathon build-up program because the Lakefront Marathon here in Milwaukee is always the first weekend in October. So starting about the last weekend in June, first weekend in July, they start a build-up program where you start with an eight-mile run and then climb up to doing a 20 to 22-mile run um, with, uh, you know, three weeks build-up, one week cutback, three weeks build one week cutback, which is kind of a standard and, and traditional way of preparing for a marathon. There's a lot of first-time marathoners in there. And uh, like New York or Philadelphia, summers in Wisconsin can be sweltering. It can be, you know, 85, 90 degrees with 90-some percent humidity where there's, you know, you're trying to find the air to breathe. And I'm out in the park and every day, every Saturday, I'm out running with everybody. And I've never forgotten there was a gentleman who is probably 5'8 and 200 and some pounds. Um who came to me afterwards kind of drenched in sweat. And by the way, I was drenched in sweat because I'm a sweater and it was a, a hot, humid day. And he came in a little, you know, slower than, than some of the other runners. And there's still some people coming in behind him. And there's usually a couple hundred people out there running. And he said to me that his doctor said um, that he shouldn't run. And I asked him, I said, are you enjoying running? He said, I love it. And I said, have you lost any weight? like, I lost 12 pounds. And I said, does your body hurt? He said, well, my muscles are sore, but otherwise I feel good. I said, I'd keep running. And sure enough, he finishes the marathon has a huge smile. And I would argue that 
dropping the extra weight that that gentleman had probably did more for his knees than any perceived damage that running might have done. Now, again, I'm also going to say this with the, the caveat that if you have pain and you have sharp pains, that's a sign you need to stop. That needs to be reevaluated. But if you're if you're running and it feels good, and I don't care if you're running a 20 minute per mile pace, you're running a seven minute per mile pace. But if you're running and enjoy it and you're not having pain, you're in getting the the positive returns from it, I would absolutely encourage people to do it. I would encourage you to do it. And you know, maybe you go out, maybe you go out, you walk a minute, you run a minute, you walk a minute, you run a minute, you walk a minute, you run two minutes. Um, and just see how it feels. And if you're like, hey, I hate this, don't run. I'm not saying running's for everybody, but if it's something that you want to try and you're passionate about, I think anybody can do it. It's a matter of, you know, do they have the drive and the will to want to do it? Yeah. No, I <clears throat> ran one marathon, the Marine Corps Marathon in uh, 1991, I think. Um, and, and I enjoyed the meditative aspect of the running where you just kind of like you and yourself and alone with your thoughts. So it's it's uh oh i appreciate that advice on that um so what like have you have you have you been able to work with any kind of like like uh, athletes who've gone on to like be more notable athletes um whether on the college level or on the professional level i mean i've had some incredible experiences and uh, um i take uh it, it it's a really humbling part of what i do when when um our former Marquette kids or even some of the high school kids I've, I've taken care of that have gone on and played uh, nationally, internationally and keep in touch. And I don't know how many weddings I've been invited to and, and uh, had the experience of kind of see them kind of grow up. Um, it's been really very cool. We have a, a young guy here who went straight from high school, played European soccer and said a couple, couple appearances on the U S national team. And one of the kindest, nicest, most wonderful families I've ever met. And uh, when I was with the Bucks and we traveled to London, I happened to reach out to him because he was playing for Reading. And he came down and you know, was able to you know, catch up over there and see him. And uh, he was just back in town, uh, had uh, uh, breakfast with him and his wife and got to catch up and just kind of hear his experiences. And he, it's a totally different pathway than you and I know. He went straight from high school to playing a professional soccer program. Now he's playing in, in Italy and, you know, playing, you know, as a pro and this is his career path. And, uh, just really cool to see that. But, uh, you know, certainly we've had, you know, the, the, there's plenty of Marquette, uh, um, former players that are playing the NBA now that we know. And, you know, we've had a good relationship with the, with those guys or in the WNBA, quite honestly, Natisha Heidemann was one of our uh, players who's playing. Um, and obviously my time with the Bucks, I've, we experienced uh, interactions with uh, lots of different folks. I, I've been completely intimidated um, by Shaq, who is quite possibly the largest human being I'll ever see in my life. Um, you know, Michael, as you know, I'm five five and a whopping 150 pounds. Shaq is at least two of me. Um, I, w- I was when during my fellowship year out in Boston. Uh, Mike, that was Michael Jordan's, I think, last year, second last year. And uh, Eddie Lissard, who was the trainer of the Celtics, was the dream team trainer. So we had a great relationship with Michael. And one of the joys of, of fellowship was that you got to check on the visiting team. So it kind of gave you a chance to walk the locker room and just kind of be kind of enamored by all the, the, the big name players. And you realize pretty quickly they're just human. But um, we went over there and Michael Jordan was in the locker room. And Eddie said, well, you have to go to the, the second. So 
Eddie takes me into the second locker room and I literally was jaw, I, my jaw dropped. I'm like, there's Michael Jordan sitting right in front of me. And it was uh, um, really very cool. And it's one of the few times in my life I've been just awestruck about this is the guy that you see everywhere and that does stuff that's so magical. Um, that uh, was really very cool. But uh, I, I've, I've been fortunate with the experiences and I've had a chance to build some really neat relationships with a couple of them. Um, Carlos Delfino is probably the one I remain the closest with, and he's just a wonderful guy who's from Argentina, lives between Argentina and Italy. Um, I've gotten to know him, his wife, and his kids, and uh, um, really very, very spoiled with that. And is there any <clears throat> is like quality or characteristics that you can see like in all athletes, even across like different sports, where you're like, you know, you can either tell that person is going to be successful or like after they find success, like, oh yeah, that's of course because they have the same trait. Like is there I guess any trait that's kind of uni unif universal for for like kind of really standout athletes? It's a really good question. I don't think I have that one trait. I can't say that. I can tell you that that my experience with the NBA and this is a very generality kind of base statement. Um, when you have a guy like Giannis that was drafted when I was still with the Bucks, and we, we worked with him for the first couple of years in his, in his career, he's exactly what you see. He is the immigrant young man who had the fortune of his family on his shoulders, and he is one of the most likable, kindest, energetic um, people who was so passionate about doing well because he came from nothing. And I think that, that that drive is different than what I saw in some other athletes. Once they made it, they made it. And that's, again, a very general statement. And there's, uh, I would say the vast majority of people I, I, I got a chance to work with were great folks and, and really were in it for the right reason. But um, NBA in particular is different because they're all guaranteed contracts. Um, so, you know, once you get your contract, you're getting paid and, you know, there's really no way you don't get paid unless you do something horrific. Um, so if you have a five-year contract and you're getting paid a certain, you know, number million dollars per year, you know, you kind of get to see what's the motivation like for the person. And, uh, um, uh, I will say Giannis is the one guy that I always, he never changed in, in his motivation. Um, we had a couple other guys too, actually, on this current current roster of the box that, that, you know, I'm no longer affiliated with, but that, that we had taken care of that had that same, they're just really good people and just really wanted to do something special. And there are others that just want to collect a paycheck, just like every sport has. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Cause like you mentioned that, you know, we athletes are people too. And I think it's, it's up from the sidelines. It's easy to just think, okay, somebody gets paid X amount of money. They should still, they should be working harder than ever. But I think that if you, if you wonder what, how you would, be if you were getting paid, you know, five, 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year guaranteed, no matter what, how that might sap away your your enthusiasm or your motivation. Um, it would be human nature for something to kind of change and to be able to continue that um, is definitely impressive in and of itself. I always kind of told the, the kids, like my sons, when they want to play, sports is like you want to do it don't even do it for the numbers like for how many goals like when my when effort was playing soccer i never told him to worry about the goals it's all about just did you 
do everything right? Did you they think about it as a craft? You want to mm-hmm. know that you did it the right way, not that you scored the right number of goals. Because if you're a really good athlete and a really serious soccer player, you'll know that somebody can score a lot of goals and not necessarily have a good game. And you know that somebody can score no goals and actually had a really good game. Mm-hmm. I, I would, I think, and, and I, and I, I, yeah, how you carry yourself. And, yeah. I, and as you were saying that, what, what first came to my mind is I was always struck by the players that seem to most appreciate the fans and really the kids. And I, I can tell you some of the most maligned players that we took care of and ones that were really hard for me to take care of because they were difficult were amazing with kids. And uh, I always thought that at least they had that value right because that kid coming to the game, man, you make a big impression. If you, if you, you disrespect them or, you know, you blow them off, that kid never forgets it. And now with social media, dad, dad or mom posts about it. But, you know, 20 years ago, nobody posted about it because he didn't, couldn't do that. Um, and then you got to really see the real genuine uh, response. And it was also funny for me with, with one of our players in particular that I was also very close with, he was really shy. And I had a uh, um, patient who unfortunately went through a really difficult time with family where one of the parents passed away. And uh, we got some tickets for him to come to the game. And, and I talked to one of the players that I was close with and put together a bag of stuff to, to give to him. And Bango, our, our mascot, was a, somebody I was very close with because unfortunately he got hurt a little bit. And uh, I got to spend some quality time with him. And he was amazing with kids. Even with this costume that had no expression change, he had an amazing way to connect. And so he came by. And then um, at halftime, that one particular person made, hey, Doc, can you bring you know the boy down so I can meet him? I said, are you sure? You've done so much. And he's like, no, I really want to. The player was petrified. He was so nervous meeting this kid. And I realized, wow, like this is, this is a big moment for you too. Like you're starting to realize the impact you can have on him. And it was great. And it was really cool for both because the kid is shyly standing behind mom and, and players kind of shyly standing behind me when he's a foot taller than me. Um, and then all of a sudden they kind of met in the middle and it was really a very cool experience. I think both were better from it. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. <clears throat> so, um, I was just, I was wondering about this as we were, as I was getting ready for the call. Um, I know how important the university of Wisconsin is. I also know how important the, the Packers are. Which team would you say is more fundamentally intertwined with the identity of a Wisconsinite? Packers or the Badgers? Oh, I think the Packers would be. I mean, the Packers are. are I mean, it's the, the story of the Packers is still. I think the best in sports. I mean, I, I, and look, I, I and I love rabid fan bases. You know, Giants, Jets fans in your world, I get it. Eagles fans are crazy, but they're rabid, and I get it. I mean, the fact that I'm actually officially a part owner of the Packers with a completely useless um investment that has zero dollar value but i get to put it on my wall as a stock owner um and it's owned by the city and if the team is ever sold i believe all the proceeds go to the uh um, american legion post um and there's no one owner there's not the jerry joneses there's not the uh the the different families that make these decisions it's literally owned by the community and there's you know the city is not much bigger than the number of people that fits inside the stadium I just think that's such a cool story. Um, and so, yeah, that's part of the culture. But, you know, Madison is the economic engine in terms of, you know, the generating uh, um, intellectual power in the state. Uh, there's no question about that. You know, like like most states, the cities are the economic engines. Milwaukee is, 
is critical to the the uh, the future of Wisconsin um, because it is the big city. It's you know it's the headquarters of everything. Um, but Madison is really that that academic institution. And Milwaukee's got a couple of great schools with Marquette, Milwaukee School of Engineering, uh, University of Wisconsin Milwaukee, which is the, the the second biggest of the the UW system. Um, you know we have pretty good academics here. You know, we, we've gone through some difficult times as far as some of the funding for our schools. And um, I think that the priorities have to change a little bit. So we start realizing that if you don't fund the schools, that means you don't fund the future. Um, you don't fund the future, you know, leaders and, and the workers in, in the community. Um, but uh, um, Badger, Badger football Saturdays, are there's nothing like them. Um, uh, it is a lot of fun. And uh, those days start early and they end late. <laughs> Lots of brat. Well, it's not just the brats. I mean, honestly, better <laughs> games are more of the beer. Uh, if you want to know the truth. Line of Google. Um, but uh, uh, line, you can't go on line of Google. So you still remember that's good. Um, but uh, um, yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a unique environment, and it's a sea of red when you're up there. And again, like any passionate college base, um, it's just a ton of fun. And if you haven't ever seen a game on TV when you jump around at the start of the fourth quarter, well, literally the whole place shakes. Um, with having everyone jumping and using, it's just, it's crazy to be part of it. And the, the song traditions and everything else, just like every school, it's just, it's really, it's fun. Yeah. So, um, I mean, when, when you think of Wisconsin, you are supposed, you are supposed to think of like beer, but is beer, I, I, cause like, even when I was thinking, but just thinking about it now, like when, uh, you know, I visited UA back when to like now the beer industry has changed a lot. There's so much more craft beer and it's spread all over the country. Is beer still a big thing in either Milwaukee or the state of Wisconsin in general? It's still big. There's no question about it. Um, you know, the sad part is that what were the big breweries in Wisconsin? Um, Blatt's, which is now an apartment building. The Paps Brewery Complex is now apartments and, and, and uh, um, businesses. Although there are brewing beer there again for a uh, um, different brewery. Uh, Miller is still here as their headquarters. Uh, actually, no, headquarters in Chicago, I believe. But uh, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's a totally different company than it was. Uh, like most places, we have a tremendous number of craft breweries. Um, and some really exceptional ones. Um, I think everybody would tell you their, their town has got some great craft brewery. Um, you know, ironically, Wisconsin is actually the largest consumer of brandy, I believe, um, because of the brandy old fashions here. Uh, but, uh, you know, beer is still a big part of beer. The cheese and dairy industry is big. Uh, but, you know, like most places, the economics are changing. A lot of the smaller farms are going away. It's becoming much more corporate. Um and as you mentioned, brats and our sausage industry with the German heritage of this town and the state is, is going strong. Uh, I think Johnsonville ships nationally now uh, or has been for years um, and it is exceptional um, and they are quite good. Nothing healthy about them, but uh, um, uh, they are uh, quite tasty. Wait, wait, John, Johnsonville, is that? Johnsonville, is that? Sheboygan, uh, Wisconsin. Okay. I think that they're the largest ones now in the state and they ship uh, nationally. Um, but uh, Usinger's is the is one of the big ones in Milwaukee. It's Usinger's and Clements. Okay, um, all right. Well, but, uh, and Usinger's the Usinger Elves um, uh, is the, is the, uh, the storyline of buying them. Okay, well, if there's some things for people to Google if they're interested in learning more about Wisconsin mm-hmm. brought. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, um, there's nothing it is funny when i was in boston in med school it's when the packers played the the patriots and uh, uh, oh, wow. um i decided to do a little packer party first of all my, my friend at the time sent me a packer's flag that i put on my car and i got chased down the street by people with shovels so i took that off but uh <laughs> i had uh um a couple cases of line of google shipped out and uh um i forgot i got the six or 12 pounds of brats 
shipped out. And brats, if you look at them, are not very attractive. Um, it's not a good looking piece of food you're about to eat. Mm. Um, and somebody brought a six pack of Budweiser, I believe, in my party, and we use that to soak the brats because, you know, <laughs> traditionally uh, in Wisconsin, you soak them in beer. And I said, well, mm. nobody's going to drink the Budweiser. I got Lana Googles. Um, and then everyone loved them once you ate them. If you, um, yeah. but, uh, so it is the culture. And the culture for tailgating here is fantastic. If you go to a Brewers yeah. game in Milwaukee, the uh, uh, the stadium is built where it's built because you need to have a big parking lot so people can tailgate before the game. I was explaining um, when we went to a Mets game, I think maybe this past summer, and when you, when you look at it, just that if you're not into the tailgating culture, and frankly, we don't go to enough sports, sporting events to say we're a part of the tailgating culture, but I said to her at least, like, if you think about it, if you've got to get to a game at a certain time to make it on time, you're better to just show up early, and if you're going to show up early, then you might as well show up really early and just kind of have a party out of it. And I think at least that, that to me is how I definitely can see why the people would be tailgating in the New York area. And I imagine it's the same thing for anything. Like you don't want to be showing up minutes before; you want to get there early. And if you can get there early, it's, just make it a party. Just it's a game day the experience. Day. Yep, it's a game day experience. Yeah. Um, I was thinking as, as you're describing that there was a couple of years ago, LSU played uh, the Badgers in, in Lambeau field. And uh, a lot of the LSU fans stopped them walking the way up, spent the night here before. And we had a great time talking to all these fans, you know, they've got their, their RVs, they're ready to do the big tailgate. And I'm like, it's going to be just nuts in that parking lot because that's the culture up here too. And I'm sure the food that was shared and their jambalaya and uh, um, panat and all the other stuff and our brats and uh, um, burgers and, and everything else, I'm sure it was just a phenomenal uh, party up in the parking lot. Does the Mississippi start in mm-hmm. Wisconsin? It's, I believe it starts either in northern Wisconsin or north. Actually, I know it's either northern Wisconsin or Minnesota. I think it's in Minnesota side though. Okay. Uh, but it basically it's it's kind of the border uh, between the two states. Okay, well, it's interesting then that you'd have like the LSU one end of the Mississippi and in general in mm-hmm. general the happening at the other end of the Mississippi. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> is there something that you wish people knew more about Wisconsin, or they don't know about at all about Wisconsin? Um, you know, I, I, again, I think that the, the phrase that it was a flyover state when, uh, we were in school out East, um, that was, uh, uh, that was an eye opening for me because it, I do think there's a, there's a cultural understanding that the coasts are where everything's happening. And I mean, if you haven't been to Chicago, Chicago's massive, you know, Chicago's buildings, you know, rival the New York buildings, they're like the same density. Uh, I just heard a report that they've got the worst traffic of any city in the country because, um, this is still a driving area as opposed to New York, which I think it's much more subway and uh, taxi uh, centered. Um, but, you know, Wisconsin's a good place. It's good people. Um, it's a very family-oriented place. It's a respectful place. Um, you know, it's 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 a hardworking community. Um, and I, I, I think we've got a lot of great things going on. And the nice part for me is that if I really want big city life and I want to deal with that, you know, if I want to catch some major Broadway show, I can go to Chicago. Uh, if I want, you know, the big city experience, it's literally a uh, 87 minute, you know, drive away from where I live. Uh, now, if you do it in the middle of rush hour, it can be a, you know, five hour or four hour drive. But uh, um, so we, I think we have the best of both worlds. The other thing is that, that we have the four seasons here that is really quite nice. Uh, yes, we have some brutal winter days. There are some days that are just torture. Um, but I would argue being in the middle of Arizona in July, 
I'm sure has got some torturous days because it's going to be so hot that you can barely do anything. Um, but you know, spring comes and everything explodes. And from basically spring through fall, everyone's outside doing something and uh, it becomes much more communal. The park system is phenomenal in Milwaukee. So people are out there enjoying them. You know, there's a wonderful uh, 76 mile loop is what it initially was. It's probably way more miles than that now that connects all the parks and it's old uh, rail lines. And so you can basically be running on these paths and, and not have to deal with traffic. Um, and uh, um, it becomes very social. So I think that we, we have a lot going for us that, that people wouldn't necessarily understand. And, uh, you know, the other part about Wisconsin is actually really quite beautiful is that if you look at the old historical maps of where the glaciers came down, it stopped halfway through the state. And so you have the Kettle Moraine forest and the way the terrain is uh, um, set up naturally. It's just gorgeous. And it makes for great outdoor sports, make great for running, for cross-country skiing. Um, we're not the best downhill skiing place because we are the Great Plains. Um, but uh, um, snowmobiling, if you love that kind of sport up north, is, is fantastic. And in the summertime, there's just chains of interconnected lakes that you can go for days. And when I was a kid and I camped up north, um, you know, do a canoe trip, that'd be five, seven days long. I just keep, you know, paddling along the lakes and, and uh, you know, portage little areas that, that jump into another one if there's a little, little isthmus of landing to get over, but, you know, just great campsites and you can be outside. So we have, a, we have a lot of stuff going for us. It's kind of like, you know, New York State is not New York City. New York City is incredible, but upstate New York is a totally different area and different terrain. And, you know, it, it, it gives different way of life. Yeah, yeah. So you you referred to the lake, and this tells you, and this, and this is admittedly this is why why I've been doing this podcast is that there are things you there are things you know, and then there are things that you when you think about it, you're like you know what I'm not even sure I know. I am ninety percent sure ninety percent sure that the Great Lake that you're on is Lake Michigan, but I could be wrong. Is it Lake Michigan? If I remember it correctly, is Lake Michigan. Yes, okay. yes you so, were looking at Lake Michigan. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, um. Describe like does, is Lake Michigan like a quiet? Does it ever get? Do you ever get like waves or big waves or is it kind of like like wh- how would you describe Lake Michigan for for me who might forget it or for anybody else who's never really seen one of the Great Lakes before? Well, first off, you can't see the other side of it. <laughs> Second, it's not salty. Um, it is a little cold, but in the summertime, our beaches are used and people do go in the water. Unfortunately, with a lot of the invasive species now, we've got uh, um, some algae blooms that people have to be careful of when those days happen. Um, but it is a gorgeous lake. Lake Michigan actually is, is known as one of the more dangerous lakes to, to be out on because the weather can change so quickly. Um, but there's a huge boating culture on it. Uh, you know, I live right above the marina and you know, the marina is packed and it's fun to get down there. There's great sailing uh, on the lake. Uh, actually, there's a community sailing center that I was a kid. I think it was $30 for the summer uh, to go down. They could use the boats and they taught you how to, one, how to sail, but two, how to take care of the boats. And that's where I learned how to do fiberglass things. I'm not so sure that was healthy for a 16 year old, but uh, <laughs> um, uh, it, they're beautiful. And, and honestly, it's, it's, it's what makes Milwaukee what it is. I, I, I said when I moved back to, to Milwaukee from Boston, I, when I was talking to my parents about it, I said, I really just need to look at the lake. Like that will make me feel like I'm back in a big city because for 14 years I was gone. I lived in Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago, and back to Boston. So I was in big cities and I kind of got used to the city culture. And uh, the one thing that makes Milwaukee such a special place, aside from the people, is the fact that we're on Lake Michigan. And it really just changes the whole 
experience because just like, you know, when you look out over the ocean, you see the sunrise, it's incredible. And I get to watch sunrise over Lake Michigan and, and it's beautiful. Um, and it keeps the, 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 the weather. It's a little warmer in winter. It's a little cooler in summer. Um, and, uh, there's nothing better in the wintertime than driving down along the lake on a snowy day with all the mature trees and some of the nice neighborhoods in that area. And so, uh, I'm trying to think what else I can tell you about Lake Michigan. Uh, you there's ferries. There's actually now cruise ships going on, on the Great Lakes, which is pretty cool because uh, a bunch of them are taking off from Milwaukee and, you know, they bring these ships, I don't know, a couple hundred people on them and, you know, they stop and, you know, up along the coast and a couple, uh, a couple areas in Wisconsin and they'll go up into Canada and Michigan. Uh, and then I think they go all the way out through the, the St. Lawrence Seaway um, and go through the locks. I think that should be a really cool experience. Yeah. You know, the, if you look back at, I, I read a book about, uh, and I referred to the Lewis, Lewis and Clark journey on the, mm-hmm. the beginning of the podcast. And I read a book recently about them. And if you, if you really put your mind back into the, you know, 150, 200 years ago, I mean, people had to travel by water. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was, mm-hmm. it was far more, far easier to go on the waterways than it was to kind of go through the uncharted land. Um, and I think when you think about that, that it's a different way of understanding how everything is connected. So as you're talking about the being on Lake Michigan, I'm like, wow, that would be such a fascinating, you know, trip to like stay on, go through the Great Lakes and then up through, you know, the St. Lawrence to like Quebec and whatever. Uh, it's a totally different way of like, I guess, under framing the framing the continent and the country. That's yeah, pretty cool. And uh, quite honestly, my high school, John Nicolay was one of the big explorers. Um, that's what my, my high school is named after. So. And it's, 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 you know, it's a different culture in the East coast. We're a little slower paced We're we're, we do things a little differently. You know, we're running into the same problems the rest of the country has, you know, with uh, some divisions uh, in people and, and not everyone always being able to look and see other people's perspectives and stuff, but we generally are a little less aggressive and uh, a little slower pace. And again, if you want the faster pace, it's an hour and a half down the road in Chicago. Um, and uh, if you want the really slower pace, it's two or three hours north. Uh, and it's amazing up there. It's just gorgeous. And it's that's that's truly just the beautiful, beautiful, untouched land. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, one I was looking at I was looking at the a map, and the one thing I, I I think you always take for granted at least I always take for granted is like there's Michigan, then there's the UP, the upper peninsula of Michigan. And then when I was looking at the map, I'm like, wait. Why is the UP part of Michigan versus part of Wisconsin? Do you know why? I believe it was part of a trade that involved Toledo, if I remember correctly. And I don't <laughs> know all the details of it, but I believe it's because Ohio was going to get Toledo. And so the UP was given to Michigan. And it's something along those lines. And if you remember anything about me, I'm a terrible history and English student. So <laughs> it probably has nothing to do with Toledo, but that, that is my recollection about it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I would ask. I know if the, if the, you're the only really the only Wisconsinite that I know that I know well enough to ask that question. Sure, and I will tell you the UP is beautiful. We, we ran a marathon up in Marquette, Michigan, and I forgot how stunningly beautiful it's up there. It's it's such a lush green. Uh, it's kind of like if you ever go to Alaska. You know, Alaska gets so green in the summer. <laughs> Because, you know, the days are long um, and then it gets really cold and the UP gets absolutely pummeled with snow. Um, it's, a, it's a snowmobiler's mecca um, because of uh, um, how much snow they get. And they've got these incredible trails winding through the forest. And it's a big mountain biker's paradise for summertime as well. Through all these trails that go through the, uh, uh, the woods. Yeah. You know, the, you'd mentioned that, I guess, like the divisions and stuff. And the, one of the things that, like, I guess I've been thinking about is... Um, 
I've talked to somebody else who was in Wisconsin, uh, not Wisconsin, Minnesota, and he was like a, he was not near Minnesota, not near uh, Minneapolis. And I was talking to somebody else about um, Illinois, and he was saying he's from like Southern Illinois. And the point that both of these people were talking about was like our state is not the city that you think it is. Like you think of Illinois, you think of Chicago, and it's like they'll be they make the point most of Illinois is not is not Chicago and most of Minnesota is not Minneapolis. And there's a, a and I would say it's a, I don't know if the, what the, the resentment seems to be almost more just kind of like, we're tired of like being um, people not paying attention to us or people don't even like think about us. They just think the state is this and we're the, the, the city drives the entire state. So like the, the division, if we can even call it that, that I've sensed is almost more like, it's not, the, the, the tension is not necessarily between like certain uh, like major areas of like the country versus others, but it's more almost like the rural versus the urban um, differences in experience and priorities and perspectives. Um, do you do you see that in Wisconsin too? Well, that's one hundred percent what it is. I mean, it's it's even suburban into urban. Um, it's one hundred percent of what it is, and it's a uh, um, again. I think that our experiences from going to college in West Philly. And then for me, when I was in med school in Boston, we did a um, program called Boston Outreach. And I've never forgotten the experiences we had talking to these high school kids who had such a different background that we had and saw such different hope, which they had very little um, because they didn't see anything around them that looked like success. And they struggled. And, and it made me realize that that we don't all have the same opportunity. And it's easy when you're not in these environments, say, Hey, just, you know, pick up your bootstraps. Let's go. You got to fix it yourself. When sometimes things aren't always structured so they can, and that, you know, sometimes you do need to provide more help for folks to give them the opportunities because it's just not there. Um, and I think that's a big part of what I see uh, in Milwaukee. I think it's easy to say, Hey, your problems are, you know, you got to fix your own community and, and, you know, take care of yourself because we don't have that problem out here. Like I'm in my parents' house right now, uh, where I grew up in the Northern Burbs and we don't have those problems out here. Well, guess what? We all have those problems because we're all one big society. So if one part of the society has the problem, we all have it. And, uh, you know, it's, you're better off, you know, uh, trying to lift everyone up than trying to leave some people behind in my world. And that's the way I kind of view things. Um, and I think Milwaukee mirrors or Wisconsin mirrors the rest of the country our problem in our state, like several states, and this goes both ways, is we're very gerrymandered. And, uh, you know, it's nearly impossible for um, anybody but a Republican to have a majority in the state by the way the state is gerrymandered. And it's unfortunate, again, I'm not picking one side or the other because there's plenty of states that also have a Democratic gerrymandered thing. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to me because it's completely non-democratic in terms of democracy to do things that way. Um, there was just an article in the paper today where they uh, talked about these are the priorities when they do all the surveys on on people in Wisconsin. Not one of them is looking after Hunter Biden's laptop. Um, not one of them, I forgot what the whole list was, but it was the stuff that we think about. It's um, how do we handle inflation? How do we do with the economy? Um, how do we provide healthcare for people? Like those are things that are people's priorities, but it's not what's being discussed because it's not what gets you elected. And uh, that's just that I think we mirror the rest of the country with it. 
Yeah, it doesn't get you clicks, and it doesn't get you, yeah. you know, eyeballs and whatever else. And I, and I think mm-hmm. that you know what I realized with uh, the, this podcast is that to me, I guess it's my, I guess maybe my way of kind of creating my own media a little bit, like kind of like you know what we need to. I, I'm trying to model the idea of having conversation and, and learning. Um, and I think to me, like w- one of the things, and I, I took some kids down to South Carolina as part of like a parallel project, you know, for American tributaries. And, you know, we were down there for a week and the kids learned so much about the state of South Carolina. But what I told them is like, to me, I gave them the reference of like, I used, I called the pizza pie of knowledge. And I said, the pizza pie of knowledge is you got one slice that represents everything you know. You got two slices that represents what you know you don't know. And there's going to always be those five slices that, you don't even know you don't know. And I think we need to be more, I think we need to be more comfortable acknowledging that we don't know that and always be looking to learn more and be more kind of curious and open-minded and I guess really not take the bait of the the people or the powers or the technology that wants us just to kind of like, you know, click, 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 click on this the, the, the outrage that really is, doesn't mean anything. It's not going to get us anywhere. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, I've come to realize that first off, the first thing I have to tell you is that you've already showed your bias because you'd assumed that the pizza was sliced in a round with, you know, triangular pieces as opposed to the square pieces. The you might have 16 pieces, but uh, <laughs> uh, that is true in New York style. You can't, by the way. Twirl, you you. can't twirl a square. I well, no, but you, but you can cut the round one in square pieces. Um, <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, that would not uh, be in your horror, slice though. Horror. Um, but, uh, um, you know, the, I'm, I've come to the realization, and I learned this actually at Penn. Um, I've never forgotten this, and I, I don't want to say the person's name, but I remember sitting um, our freshman year, and you and I technically were on different floors, even though we were like a swinging door divided. Is. Yes. But I remember sitting there um, uh, with all of our classmates from our floor. We kind of did that introductory meeting, and one of our classmates was from small town Pennsylvania, clearly a farm town guy, a wonderful person. Um, and sitting next to me was a guy named Ali, who is, uh, um, uh, Arab American from LA and the three of us were talking and the person, the, the, I'm going to call him Steve. It's not his name, but Steve made the comment about something with wrestling. That was a very anti-Semitic comment. And I didn't catch it at first. Um, Ali did. And Ali perked up and said, again, not his name, but Steve, just tell me again what you just said. And he repeated the phrase like it was nothing. And Ali looked at me and said, do you realize how offensive that is what you just said? And Steve had no idea. He was horrified to learn this. And I realized that there's a difference between being ignorant and being hateful. Whether it's anti-Semitism, it's being anti-Black, whether it's being anti-Muslim, whether it's being anti-gay, whether anti-Latino or Asian, whatever it is, um, it's okay. It's not okay to be ignorant, but it's okay if you're ignorant, then all of a sudden you can learn from that. And Steve was a much better person from the experience. Like he was horrified by it. He just didn't know. He left there as a better person. So I, I'm I'm intrigued with as you go on your journey with this this podcast and your your travels with the kids. Like I would love to take a farmer from the middle of Wisconsin, who I completely understand why maybe racist, maybe uh, uh, dislike Latino folks because the only Spanish folks they may see are 
Mexican immigrant workers that come through that are migrant workers coming through in the summertime to work in the fields for them. And the only thing they see about people that are of different colors are what they see in the news or TV shows um, and what they read on whatever, you know, streaming service they get, get across on their phone and their computer. And I'd love to have them meet with maybe a South Carolina African-American farmer and see, I bet they have the exact same problems. What is the weather doing to my crops this year? What uh, what uh, infectious organism coming through is going to wipe out my chickens this year? Uh, and I think they'd find there's far more commonality. I think that's one of the biggest things we're missing is that people are so focused on, on disliking what they don't know and are afraid of what they don't know as opposed to actually engaging in that and learning more about it. And uh, I don't know how to fix that. I'm hoping that you've got a pathway for it. Um, <laughs> and uh, um, But uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very intrigued by that part because I'm – I'm very open with the with the, my patients. We have really good open discourse conversations. I will tell you, COVID was an absolute eye-opening experience for me with people. I struggled greatly with talking to people I thought were intelligent, educated, who were making very unintelligent and uneducated comments. And I said, you know, take all the politics out of stuff. Stop thinking about politics. Just look at the facts. Like I'm a scientist by heart. I'm a biology major with math and chemistry. Um, you know, that that's my world. I said, just let me look at the facts. And I found it fascinating. And what was disheartening to me is that I had educated people that look past facts and were just listening to innuendo because it was the voice that was saying it. And they hated getting the message because who was saying the message? You know, whether you liked our former president or not, whether you liked Tony Fauci or not, whether you liked the head of the FDA or not, it doesn't matter to me. Sift all that way. Just look at the numbers. Just look at the facts. It's much easier that way. And uh, I was amazed that I could not reach a lot of those people. I had people in my office in tears having conversations about this. And they were so, they so badly wanted to believe me, but they just couldn't. And I turned them on to, so two of my classmates from med school are, are some of the most prominent voices on COVID. Uh, um, one is Ashish Jha, who's the, uh, the COVIDs are now for President Biden. And one is Josh Sharfstein, who's a, a year or two ahead of me. Um, from my med school, and he went so to the most down to earth people, kind of people you want to sit down and have a cup of coffee with. And Josh has been to all of these great podcasts, and he taught me a lot listening to him. And I'm like, just listen to these folks. You don't have to believe me. Don't listen to who you see, whether it be in Fox News or NBC. I don't care which way you're getting it from. Listen to people that have facts, and then make a real honest decision based on that. And it's disheartening to me that I couldn't reach those folks, and that scares me a little bit. Um, but I do think if you put a good, honest, hardworking person from different backgrounds that have similar experiences and what they're facing, I bet they're going to find a lot more in common than they have different. Yeah. And that, that yeah. was the beauty of honestly going to college, right? To college, we went to people's school, people, all different backgrounds. And I thought it was, it was a really cool learning experience. Yeah. Well, I, I think and to, to, to close on, I think what we we're talking about, I think, <clears throat> I think that the the confounding thing, but the 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 truth of the matter is, is that people, uh, uh, you know, as you know, are, are are both emotional and mental. So I think we're never going to be purely logical. And I think that, to me, like I've tried to, I guess I'm just like not about like trying to understand, but more maybe reframe things to understand that like. You know, I guess like if if you were to say somebody who like thinks about like okay, you're presenting me facts about this, you know, um, b about the a vaccine, um, 
that there are people who are going to see that through an emotional prism that they wouldn't be able to shake. And a lot of the discussion is usually goes more towards maybe like kind of more right wing political like perspective on it. But there's also the left wing. There's like, there's many like black people who were very suspicious of the government wanting to mm -hmm. like put something in their body because they've been victims to government Absolutely. experimentation. And I think that to me, that that's something that is almost unavoidable. And I think that in some respects we can be, it's a, it was frustrating and I'm not a, you know, certainly don't know what it would be like for you to be in the healthcare world. Like you were in really the front lines of the, the battle, but in some respects, it's actually pretty miraculous that we were able to kind of have this pandemic and actually have as much vaccine made and administered that we did the way we did. I think to me, one mm -hmm. of the things that was a problem was that the vaccine seemed to had to it had to be kind of administered from more like kind of central facility, centralized facilities because of I think maybe the, the vaccine was like it, it, it was a. Uh, like it it, it has to be like stored. It had to be stored yeah. a certain way. Mm -hmm. And if you had that vaccine more available for more general practitioners and family doctors, you might have been able to get another five, ten percent of people because it would have been but less he, about but, the government. Michael, in, in the reality is that even when you did, people still didn't take it. It was it was an inherent and you're right, there was a cultural bias as part of it, but it was an inherent part of it. What I found fascinating is that the the particular patients I'm thinking of will let me do surgery on them will trust me so much that they will let me do an operation, put them in anesthesia and do a, an orthopedic procedure on them. And yet still couldn't trust my opinion on a vaccine that had a tremendous amount of data suggesting its safety. And they just could not overcome what they were hearing from their news source or whatever it was and could not overcome the, the presentation of it. And it wasn't based on facts. It was based on the voice that was presenting it. And that was the fascinating part because one of them was like, you know, I, I can't trust that Fauci guy. I said, I get that. I understand there's that, that he's got a lightning rod of a, of, a, of a role right now, but take him out of the equation. You know, if you hate President Trump, take him out of the equation. So there you got both sides. Just look at the facts. This is paralyzing our society. We can do something to get things going again. And yeah, there's bias against it. And there's doctors that didn't like it. Um, but the vast majority of the data, overwhelming amount of data was supportive of it. And yeah, someday we may find there's some issues going along with it. But you know the statistics if you don't get the vaccine. Yeah, yeah. Those numbers yeah. are becoming pretty clear. Yeah. And, you know, maybe it didn't matter because we were knocking off people that didn't look like us. And maybe that's where some of the bias was. I just hope that's not how people made their thought process. Yeah. I, I, I think to me there was more, is more, I think, an issue of like, there was, I think there are things where this was kind of confronting a point where there was a lack of trust for the government. Like it was, it was almost like, and it was selective trust mm -hmm. for sure. But I think there was just like, it doesn't make a difference what you're going to say. I think there are people that feel so disassociated maybe from the the benefits of government or from the benefits of society that they're just going to be like, I'm not, I can't do this. And I, I don't, and I, I guess like to me, I, you know, again, I'm not in the front lines like you were. I don't, I think I, I would understand stepping back that there's going to be a percentage of people, no matter what we're going to do, that are going to disagree for whatever reason. And I think mm -hmm. in the heat of that I, moment I, and with the, the politicization of it, that it was a shame, but that it was, it was going to happen one way or the other. 
And, and I think you're right. I just think from my perspective, I should be far more of an expert on it than the average patient that comes to my office. And not that they're not super intelligent, but just because I'm in the medical world and I had a chance to look over stuff and I wasn't just blindly saying to do these things. I was tired of being at home. I live with my 84 year old mother who's got, you know, some medical comorbidities. I certainly don't want to take something home to, to her. And out of respect for her, I would like to make sure I'm in the safest environment possible as well. Or I have patients, I had a wonderful uh, example as we decide now if we're still going to wear masks or not. This was probably about a year ago. A woman came to my office that uh, um, she has a granddaughter that's got a very bad lung disease, uh, genetic lung disorder. And so she can't bring some home because it will potentially kill her granddaughter. So she wears two masks and she, doesn't have, she can, but it doesn't mean that the, the necessary excuse me, visit she has to have in my office that she can't have it. But out of respect for her, how big of a deal is it for me to wear a mask? How big of a deal for me to have my front office staff wear a mask? Well, I got a lot of patients that don't want to wear a mask. And they come in and the mask is around their chin, you know, and it, it's kind of flaunting the rules. And I'm like, you know what, guys, what about her? Does she not have the, the, the right to get health care? She doesn't have the right to keep her granddaughter safe? Or I have another patient that's getting chemotherapy right now you know, and immunosuppressed, do they not have a right to get the rest of the care if we can do little things to help them? Now, we shouldn't inconvenience everyone to something horrific, but I don't think wearing a mask is that big of a deal personally, but for some people it is. And I guess I have to understand that too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, we've, I feel like we've covered, we've covered a whole lot, but we could definitely go for a few more hours, but out of respect for, I'm sure the stuff you've got to take care of for the rest of the night, we should probably, um, we should probably wrap up, but, um, can I, I guess, you know, finish the conversation by asking like, you know, like what, what gives you hope at the end of the day? Um, you know, it's a great question. And I will tell you, I think uh, I'm going to answer with two answers. Um, first is my involvement with the sports teams. I, I think watching the kids we take care of that are of all different backgrounds from all different parts of the country, all different majors, all different ambitions coming together to unify for a goal and supporting each other through good or bad, um, through injuries, um, through a bad loss, through a missed free throw to whatever it is. It's, it, it, it makes you feel good seeing that even, even if you have a loss, seeing them pick each other up, it makes me realize that people do care about each other. Um, and the second thing for me really goes back to when I have my pre-teenagers and teenagers in my office. And, and first question I was asking, I said, what do you want to do when you get old? Um, because trying to break the ice a little bit, nobody wants to come to the orthopedic surgeon. They're coming in cause something's hurt. You know, mom's trying to hold together, not cry. Dad is, you know, doing the same thing. And the kid looking to the parents to see what's going on and, and I want to get to know what's going on. And it's really fun to hear their vision of the future and what they want to do and uh, um, watch them come out of their shell as they talk to me. Or if they do get injured and we have to do surgery on the you know, class thing that we're talking about is an ACL. You know, we know it's a six to nine month recovery. It's not going to be, we're going to do something today. You're going to feel great tomorrow. So it's going to be a process and watch them attack that and realize that people have this drive and they can do it. And that this is the next generation that's going to, you know, fill in from, you know, what we did when we went off to college and the excitement we had. And, you know, if you look at our floor, we have people of so many different backgrounds and, you know, sort of experiences and, and 
they're going to get that next opportunity and hopefully they can grow from it. I think it's really very cool. And it does give me hope. Um, you know, they can learn that Long Island is not New York city. You know, they can, you know, the stuff that I did from you and uh, you know, I can teach you that the, you know, Lake Michigan is bigger than you know, the, the lake that you take your canoe on um, and you can, you know, canoe to the other side. Um, but that, that always makes me feel good. And, and I, I love those interactions. It, it really makes my day. And I'm blessed with what I get to do for a living that I get to see kids from the start to the finish. You know, healthcare is changing a lot right now where the surgeons are doing less and less of the follow-up stuff. They have, you have PAs and nurses and else do that, which for me, I still want to be involved with every step of the process because for me, it's more satisfying. My job would be really boring if all I did is I just did ACLs and made, you know, ankles straight and everything else when things are broken. But it's fun to watch the kids work through the rehab process and then get out in the field. And that's one of the best parts of my job at Marquette is I get to see them go back and compete. You know, we had a women's basketball game yesterday and I've operated on two of the girls and, and seeing them out there playing and diving on the floor and the big smiles they have and, you know, the high five. And I'm like, this is the best. Like my, my role in that is, you know, this big, it's tiny. It's all their hard work that got them back there. But to see them from when they were in my office in tears, um, you know, having to break bad news and then busting their hump and the sweat and the, the, the pain they went through to get back and then celebrating again. That's great. And so seeing those kids, that does give me a lot of hope. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, and thank you for making time to, to chat on this, uh, this Sunday night. I appreciate it. It's been a lot of, a lot of fun to have an excuse to kind of dive a little bit more into, you know, lots of different things with you. So thanks. It's always great to catch up, Michael. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you to all the listeners out there. May you explore our country with uh, curiosity, respect, compassion, and humility. All right. Thanks so much, Michael. Thanks.